0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz.
1: Free FM 89.0. Now we present Big Things Ahead, a Free FM series in which Paul Barlow tackles the big things facing Kirikiriri Hamilton the Three Waters reforms, representation, growth, infrastructure. We and youth participation in decision-making and climate change. For more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and search for Big Things Ahead. Welcome to Big Things Ahead, a new series here on FreeFM with me, Paul Barlow, where we look at some of the big changes that are coming to Kirikirua Hamilton that's going to shape the future of the city. In this, our final episode, we're going to be looking at one of the biggest potential changes that's going to shape how the city actually feels, and that's both hugely abstract and kind of strange to look at, but it's a change that's inevitable that people seem to really be getting behind and that has a really dotted history that not everybody's a big fan of. Kitty Doa. It's the original Maori name for the region, and it means loose bit of gravel, essentially. It's all about gardening and how fertile the rivers were. Uh, and there's been a long-term debate about whether or not a name change is something that Hamilton really needs to have going forward. That suggested name change was first floated in 2018 by then Mayor Andrew King, who felt that it better reflected the partnership between Māori and Pākehā within the city, and he liked the sound of the name, and to be fair, it's a beautiful name. He didn't want this to be an election issue, and he didn't want this to be something that cost the city a lot of money to do instantly. It was more of what he would call a soft approach. So, you know, if, if they replaced something like a car that was sign written for Hamilton, the next time they replaced it, it would be with Kitty Kirikirira written on the side. At the time, polling was done to see how popular the name change idea was, and it was really not popular. The Stuff poll for Waikato Times showed only 13% of people were keen on a name change. The New Zealand Herald poll said only 40% of people were keen on a name change. But more recent polling done over the last 12 months has shown that that number is almost swapped. We're now looking at close to 90% approval for the idea of changing the name of Hamilton, Kitty Kitty and during the interview process for this show where I've spoken to a dozen people about various things and I've asked them what's the future that you see for the city there's been a fairly common approach to the first answer that they give
2: uh, to start with it's called Kitty Kitty uh,
1: a city that's not called Hamilton and, uh, kiri kiri but for many change is hard as humans we're fantastic at adapting but on an individual level, it's something that humans are not actually comfortable with, any kind of change. Uh, And that's really most apparent when you look at things like the comment section on any media post on Facebook. Uh, When I I was talking to Councillor Mark Bunting about Māori representation, actually, he brought up a really interesting fact, like an interesting perspective around how important it is that we realize that Facebook is not the be-all and end-all when it comes to social commentary. You can't take what you see on Facebook as,
0: as a reality, you know. Um, I think people are good. I think people are ready for the dialogue. I think people are open to it. It's just the extremists that um, that keep, you know, tarnishing
1: people's view on, on, on all sides. And he's got a point. One of the things that you might have noticed most recently over the last sort of two to three years, mostly two years with the COVID outbreak, is that, People who don't necessarily agree with government steps or who aren't necessarily believing the science that's presented to them, they're really loud on social media, and it's exactly the same thing when it comes to changing the name of the city. You'll get a lot of people who are very vocal about it, but the name change itself is important for a couple of different factors, such as the fact that Hamilton City Council doesn't really represent everybody. But then, of course, you get... Um...
0: The likes of Wiramupuki, for example, who's, who says, I'm not represented by your
1: representatives in there. That fighting for change is nowhere more apparent than in the argument around the Captain Hamilton statue. So – Just as a quick refresher for you, a couple of years ago, the Captain Hamilton statue, the statue of Captain Charles Fane Hamilton that the city is named after, was physically attacked with an axe and paint thrown on it. And then during the Black Lives Matter movement over the last 18 months or so, there were some credible threats that came into the safety of the statue. So the city council decided, no, it's not worth the effort. Upped the statue, boxed it up and put it in a safe, secure location, which to this day Nobody has told me where that is, and that is rare. That statue was a really interesting turning point for the city. It was donated to the city by Bill Gallagher, who, as you're probably aware, is one of the most well-known individuals within the city. He's got a bit of money to burn, and this was a gift for the 150th anniversary of the founding of the city. There was no consultation with the council, with Māori, with anybody who would be considered a partner within any kind of context here about the statue itself. It was basically a, here's a pretty monument to a dead guy who never came here. And that caused a lot of upset for a lot of different reasons. But more importantly than the upset it caused... It created dialogue and a change to the way that things get looked at now within the city and how culture is presented. I sat down and I spoke to Dr. Jeremy Mail who is the CEO of Creative Waikato about this and this is a topic that's still kind of touchy to the artists within the city and the creative community within the city because everyone is aware of the baggage that it comes with but that baggage Has helped inform how decisions around public art are going to be made going forward.
3: I think that having a panel that brings together um, mana whenua, brings together uh, wakatatane voices, brings together community voices, and brings together expert voices to inform the kind of selection and process of public art is a good thing. Um, Otherwise, it can become a, a, or has the risk of becoming a popularity popularity contest with counsellors or or the the person that you know or being able to kind of get something through a system that doesn't have that kind of robust understanding. I think one of the tricky things with public art is that um, because it's public, everyone has an opinion on it, I think the best way to describe it is that there is art for everybody but not all art is for everybody. And so there will definitely be a thing that you find that resonates with you that is like, this is so great. I love this thing. And then there's probably another thing that you're like, I don't get it or I don't like it or I don't want it. If the decision-making process is based in that, is based in, oh, I don't like it, so we shouldn't do it. You end up with a city that just doesn't have anything because you're never going to please everyone. The value is in having these things because they inspire conversation, they, they inspire things, they inspire potential, and they will resonate with some people. And so, it's the more we have, the more you can find the one that's for you, and then this one is for someone else. And to see that as being part of the kind of collective vision of the city, then that becomes really exciting. And so, having a thing that is looking at it from a bunch of different perspectives and, and kind of recognizing the the different values that it brings I think is really useful. And I think also the way that it, it is focusing on it is kind of separated out kind of public art as a kind of concept and then kind of monuments as a different thing. Yeah, there's they're sometimes lumped together but they're they're very different things. These like The kind of idea of the 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 statue and the the kind of monument is very old world. It it feels like it's not progressing the conversation in an interesting way, and it's very risky because you put something up about someone and someone uncovers some terrible thing that they did in the past. And like, why do we why do we need that? Where if we can have things that articulate kind of stories that aren't necessarily about a singular person but they're about a kind of broader concept or they're about a broader history or they articulate a vision for the future that becomes really inspiring because that's how we make a sense of that being a part of this place rather than that being a part of a single person and so when we look at these different kind of abstract forms or these things that connect with um, teo Māori or connect with imagined versions of community connection or what the human experience is or what it means to be a person in the Waikato at this time, that's really exciting. And so
1: I think the panel has um, the kind of potential to really guide that. You have your monuments, which are very much uh, an individual, like the Dame Hilda Ross statue or controversially the Charles Hamilton Fane statue. And then you have your memorials, which are more abstract, but looking at a particular uh, event. So something like the War Horse, for example, down at Memorial Park. Each of these have a place within the society that puts them there. And up until recently, for the last few years, there hasn't been a panel to decide this. It's basically if somebody's offering us art, we give them a bit of land, boom, it's done. And there are some people doing amazing work out there to create public art within those spaces. The most obvious one is Boone Street Art and the Toti Art Trust, which provide the city with some public art Pieces, and you will see them dotted all over the city and it's absolutely amazing. Um, Boone Street you'll see the pictures and the paintings murals stuff like that going up on walls every year um, and then you've got other people as well like the Gallaghers who are look we've got money to burn here's a statue to put in place without necessarily considering the consequences of what that is and that's where this panel comes in because one of the things that all are Does, no matter what format it's in and no matter who it's aimed for, is it's designed to make you think and make you interact with it in some way or respond to it in some way, whether that's good or bad, positive or negative, that's entirely subjective. By not having that oversight, though, to be able to say this is something that the community can look at, um, while also doing things like let's investigate the person that they want to put a statue up to, we run the serious risk of putting up art that doesn't necessarily. Um, move the conversation forward for the city, and has the real potential to really offend people. And that's exactly what happened with the Charles Hamilton statue. But changes to the way that public art is looked at, received and distributed around the city, as well as things like changing the name of the city and recreating the identity of it, has a lot of potential for the creative sector itself. As Dr. Jeremy Mayle said, it unlocks a lot of potential. I see there is so much potential in... Hamilton
3: positioning itself as a creative city and, and, and having that be a really core part of the value of what Hamilton is. There's, there is so much potential within the spaces, within the natural environments, within the intersection across the country as a kind of hub for, for that type of work. Um, there, and, and there's just some really, thriving creative people here who are doing amazing stuff that um, if we continue on the trajectory that we've been on, that that can only be a good thing.
1: The idea of a local authority setting up things like how art is going to look, what the community feels like, and and building nodes and places for people to work from is called placemaking. Surprisingly, Mm. simple name for a very simple process. Uh, And Council has, at the moment, A definite say in how that goes ahead, but not a full say in how that goes ahead. Um, When I sat down and spoke to uh, Waikato Regional Councillor Jennifer Nichol, for her, that was her vision for the future, was to make sure that local authorities had a more important say in placemaking for their communities. And the really important thing to take away from this is that people who are elected to represent their communities should represent their communities. And that's really hard to do on a national scale. On a local scale, it's obviously a lot easier to do. And as the face of local government changes, which you can listen to in the Local Government Reform Act episode that I did a couple of weeks ago, uh, you, you finally realize, we start to realize, that there's definitely a place there for placemaking on a local level. that doesn't necessarily have to be around pipes and buildings and, you know, how... Everything works. Sometimes it's about how everything feels.
4: Well-being aspect, I think we can go a lot harder. So um, that's what we were just talking about before with having these hubs or, or just having councils in charge of placemaking, having a bit more power and funding to make the places that we live in. Um, I, I note that overseas, some local governments have a lot more control about what they can do within their city or district than we do here in New Zealand. And so you tend to get, um, yeah, local government not being able to move on things that the community expects them to move on unless central government mandates it for everyone kind of thing. Yeah, so I think that would be really nice to, to really join that up between the people and local government and central government. So that comes to that whole building trust between central government and local government so that we can equitably share resources between us to work together rather than not always
1: so well. (laughs) When it comes to creating a sense of place within the city, there's probably nobody more qualified to talk about this than Mark Surveyn. Now, we spoke to Mark a lot about the SUV and democracy stuff because that's an area that he's worked really hard on. But the two biggest contributions outside of politics that Mark has brought into the city is that he was the driving force behind Hamilton's riffraff statue. And he's one of the main driving forces behind the Momentum Trust to build that new theater down Victoria Street. So when I asked him about his vision for the future of the city, for me, it was really interesting because it's actually kind of bleak in that he can foresee a future where the industrial complex is in charge of making sure we stay alive. And he's not a big fan of something like that but he sees the city as an oasis in the dark.
5: Hamilton has the chance to stand out against that because we are in a good spot. We are, we do have advantages that lots of people would love to have, not just in the world, but in New Zealand. And if we're smart, we get over this this extra layer of cultural cringe and take on the, the role as the friggin' world-beating outfit because we are the high tide mark of Western civilizations, is it? There is nothing, there is no other option. The newest town and the newest country. What I hope is that we continue to balance the the, the strength of Hamilton at the moment, which is this tension between cosmopolitanism and provincialism. We need, we're both. And and if we can keep that, it would be great. But I suspect, and, you know, that's why I put riffraff one end of the street because he's the counterweight to the cow at the other, right? So in terms of those those values. So, um, uh, th- what makes Hamilton interesting is that is that, that that tension between the the small enough to make an impact, big enough not to get run out of town. Um, and if we can have that sort of thing continue and be a, a, a cool little pocket city in which people know each other and can get things done and you can feel like a sense of community but you've still got the best art and the best sport and the best ex- recreational opportunities in the world, and, and a diverse range of human beings to hang out with and sophisticated nightclubs and great a great theatre in the middle of town, I should mention that, um, well, this will be the best place in the damn world to be. That balance between
1: provincial and metro, which really does define Kirikirira Hamilton in so many ways, also ingrains a really strange attitude with a lot of people where essentially if something is tried and it fails the first time, people don't want to try it again. And that's been seen in multiple times across multiple different examples. And it's really fascinating to sit down and watch because it means that people get a little bit anxious about trying new things at a different time or different products, different reasons. Um, when I was talking to Councillor Mark Bunting about the Ward Street changes and the Ross Trevor Street changes that came under the Waka Kotahi Living Streets plan, he brought up a really interesting point here about how if you fail the first time within the city, you have to be really careful about what you do the next time because it poisons the well, and people get really anxious about trying new things. And that can be in the long run kind of dangerous when you're looking at things like traffic plans for example the traffic plans around your main arteries have to work around the fact that if you screw it up people can die but when it's looking at changing the way a street works for example the, the stakes might not be quite so high but people feel more personally here's what he had to say about that great idea fantastic idea and i'll, I'll support you know, obviously innovation,
0: but it did us so much damage with our credibility um, with uh, the community that if we don't take a learning from that, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble because I tell you what, I, used to, I live uh, not far from Crosby Road, and we're trying to, you know, um, talk with the community about the potential of putting a cycle lane down Crosby Road so we can join up two major uh, north-south cycle routes. But unfortunately, it was on the backdrop of Ward Street, and of course, man well, we don't want another one of those, and then out came the pitchforks. And then, of course, there was um, uh, the cycle bridge, which came out, the Auckland Harbour cycle bridge came out at the same time. So those things make it really hard to do the more well-thought-out, low-hanging fruit stuff. So, you know, while we were working on the really cool things like the Manga Iti Path and across parks and the Parks Connections Plan and more of that stuff that people don't have to get in the way of stuff, Ward Street happened, boom. And I think we got seduced by the 90% funding from Waukakate, Uh and said, well, look, it's free money, but actually it turned out not to be um, because it actually, we ended up paying close to between 30 and 40% of the cost by the time we covered it all up um, and took it back. Um, and the the political equity we spent on that was not, I just don't think it was worth it.
1: But that Innovating Streets plan, that, that experiment to try things out, to test the waters on something relatively small within the whole scheme of things, it wasn't all a negative outcome. Uh, when I spoke to Jo Wrigley at Go go. she was very much in favor of what came out of it, not just because you saw a change in the way that traffic worked, but because it showed that change, no matter how small, can affect things bigger than itself in a snowball effect essentially going forward. And it's very much the same about the attitude towards the city as a whole.
2: What Innovating Streets did was it succeeded in slowing down traffic. It succeeded in making people more aware of their surroundings when they were driving. Um, And it succeeded in showing that if we just change a small thing here, that it actually has a broader impact across the city that supports positive outcomes. So essentially, while it might have been confusing to some people, that's actually not an excuse not to do it. What it did was make people aware of their surroundings while they were driving, because most of Hamilton drives around on autopilot.
1: That outlook, that idea, that one little change, which does freak people out a little bit at first, can be something that ends up being really good in the long term, that changes the way that people see something and perceive something and basically accept something. It goes into play not just in how you might rearrange a street or where you might put a piece of art, but around the entire city itself, which very much brings us back to that conversation about changing the name of the city. Kirikirua Hamilton is a beautiful place and it has so much potential to be so many things to so many people and sometimes it kind of feels like it's not really doing that at the moment that people are kind of reserved and they pull back a little bit and they're, they're not really big on things. One of the things that you have to remember as well though is that there's a really big difference between the people who make the decisions and the people on the street who are doing the work. Uh, And Joe summed this up really nicely for me in that it's it's almost binary versus values. And I think that's something we have to take on board as well when it comes to how the city is going to feel in the future.
2: One of the things to do with – one of the messaging community change campaigning things um, is is to be values-based. So that people feel that they can be engaged in it, and so often the debate at a bureaucratic or political level is about what's right and what's wrong. It's always a binary discussion about what could happen, um, whereas in the community we have values-based conversation. So it's not about right and wrong; it's about do you want um, do, do you want the world to survive so your grandchildren can have thriving, happy, healthy lives in a beautiful environment, generally the answer is yes, and then people come and contribute what they can. It doesn't happen like that from a political level. That's where the binary discussions happen. I'm not entirely sure what what they serve other than eventually there's usually a bit of money that comes out of them and some policy that changes. But they take a lot of time
1: that mix of binary and values-based decision-making is really important going forward because they're going to be the decisions that make up what the city looks and feels like in the future. But it's also really important to know that we know a little bit about how the future is going to look. We've had a glimpse into it for years now as we've seen technology evolve and change, and we know for a fact that there's going to be more automation, that there's going to be a lot less reliance on ourselves and more on machines to do some pretty everyday tasks, we might not necessarily have a George Jetson style future, but we're definitely going to have a future with more spare time on our hands. And that's actually a really important thing as well when it comes to how the place is going to feel going forward. Dr. Jeremy Mayle had a really cool outlook for the future around creativity specifically because, well, I'll let him explain it because you know he does it better than I do. If everything becomes automated, creativity is going to be
3: the thing that we do. It's going to be the thing that no, no one really wants to hear the machine making the music. We want to hear the, that coming from a, a human place. Um, and so if we, if, if, if work is removed, well, then our, our time is going to be spent in creating. And telling the
1: stories and i think that's the future the future is completely unwritten at the moment but we do have hints as to which way it's going and some of the things that are coming up and we can adapt to that we can change for that humans are amazingly adaptive creatures and anybody who has survived a summer in kerikirira hamilton i know you can adapt because you go from very very cold wintry fogs to incredibly muggy humid summers if you can't adapt You just don't last there. Hamilton is a place that is set up very specifically for people who can adapt and who can change. And the future is really bright. Now, whether or not we have something, you know, flying cars and full on automation, we don't know that yet. What we do know is that the changing feel of the place is really obvious now to people who are just discovering the amazing food options or location options, some of the beautiful places, meeting the great people there, seeing how creative the community can be and how passionate communities can be. And that's what's going to change how people feel about the city from outside and, more importantly, how the people who choose to live there feel. And with an extra 60,000 people over the next 30 years estimated to call Kirikirira a home, That's a massive undertaking. And as I said at the beginning of this piece, a lot of that comes down to a really simple thing that is going to happen. I have absolutely no doubt about it, that at some point in the future, Hamilton City Council is going to change the name of the city. And it's going to be changed to either Kirikiriroa or Kirikiriroa Hamilton, because It's a much better representation of the melding of communities that are there now and of building a partnership of communities going forward into the future. It inspires people, it respects people, and hopefully it will help build a better future for the people who are looking at it now, for my kids and my grandkids, for your kids and grandkids. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the episode, the last one for the series. I want to thank everybody who's taken time out to join me for interviews. It's been absolutely amazing, and I really hope that you've gotten something out of this. You can download this episode and all of the episodes now from the Free FM website, freefm.org.nz, or wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you very much for joining me on this journey. I can't wait to see the changes that come to Kitty, Rao Hamilton, and I can't wait to see how much of an awesome place it's going to end up being. In the for future. more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Big Things Ahead is a Free FM podcast. To nā o te
0: Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.